The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You know, it's so good to be gathered together as the body of Christ, to be in a place of worship, to worship and to honor the Lord through music, through the teaching of God's word. And this morning, we want to approach God with humble hearts, with reverence, with the opportunity to celebrate Him and to worship Him. And we want to be a people who are used by God for His glory. As we sing these songs, let's worship Him from our hearts as we sing these songs. God, we thank You for the wondrous cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You that You are the King of Heaven. Father, the one who is worthy to be praised. Lord, I pray this morning that as we come to your word, Father, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the truth of the scriptures. God, change us. Lord, help us to be more like your son, Jesus. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's good to see everybody here. We're entering into our uh, fourth discourse. Uh, Children, a lot of what you heard the scriptures say was hyperbole as you go to the uh, classes back there. I was sitting over here watching David Ham with his daughter, and it's talking about gouge out your eyes, and she's like, huh? And he's like laughing. And then I think one of the songs was talking about set us on fire. I'm like, man, we got a lot of explaining to do when we go home. <laughs> he was just laughing, going, no, babe. No, we'll talk about this later. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we're in our fourth discourse now. Uh, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount. That's where Jesus had his disciples on the mountain. And he said, listen, you're to be changed from the inside out. You don't need to look for religious perfection. You need the perfections of Christ given to you as a gift. And then that changes you. It makes you religious. It's not the other way around. And so as true disciples, we turn to faith in Christ to be made righteous. And then he said in the second discourse, he's, I'm going to send you out. Here's what to expect. 
And so we've been calling this series Sent by the Son. He saves us in order to send us. He, he saves us to make us missionaries, to make us ambassadors, and, and, and to represent Christ wherever we go in all areas of life, our workplace, our neighborhood, our hobbies, our families, wherever we go, we're to represent Christ well. And then he's talked about the nature of the kingdom, because if you can imagine these disciples, as Jesus came, they were expecting someone to reign and rule immediately like, like King David or King Solomon. And, and he had to explain the nature of the kingdom was he came first to start the kingdom with his death on the cross, dying as the suffering servant, but that the kingdom would grow slowly like a mustard seed. And, and at first, a mustard seed is the tiniest little seed, but it grows and gets larger and larger. But that happens as we are missionaries taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then Christ will come and establish his powerful rule, his kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth. And so we've called this series Sent by the Son of God. And so this week, having heard the first three sermons, uh, the first three discourses of Jesus being all about being disciple makers, being on mission, we're pausing our normal community group study guides. We're pausing our regularly scheduled program, and we're going to start uh, four weeks studying a missional series that the North American Mission Board uh, put out. If you've been through our membership process more recently, you've already gone through the material, uh, but it's important to, to keep this uh, present on our mind. It's the four I's, how to prayerfully identify, invest, invite, and increase the kingdom. And it gets very practical. So we're trying to give you practical tools to equip you to be sent by the Son of God. We don't want to just talk about this. We want to equip you to do it well. And so our prayer is over the next four weeks, you get some very practical equipping on how to live a life on mission where you already live, where you're already going day in and day out. And so today we begin the fourth discourse of Matthew. There's only five, so we're getting close to the end. And so we'll, we'll wrap this up at the beginning of June or late May. And so we're a uh, fourth discourse. And what is the fourth discourse about? Well, it's all about the community of faith. If you think about what Jesus is doing, he is preparing them for, for his departure. And he wants them to know about what it's like in the community of faith. In among his disciples, he wants them to know two things. And these are the two things we're looking at today. The community of faith should be characterized as humble and holy. And those are our two points we're going to look at today. And this is going to cover chapter 18. Uh, not all today, but in chapter 18, Jesus is going to be looking at the characteristics of the community of faith, of the church, if you will, in, in our vernacular. So we're going to look at that. And then in chapter 19, he's going to apply that to Christian marriages. And then in chapter 20, he's going to really talk about the church's values and what we should value as the community of faith. And so today, we're going to look at and, and pray that the Lord helps us be the community of faith that is both humble and holy. So let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, would you make us a humble, holy people? We know this can only happen by your grace, by your Spirit's activity in our hearts, transforming us into what you declare over us. And so, Lord, please let this time in the Word, by the work of your Spirit, be a part of making us what we're reading about, humble and holy. And we want this for your praise and your glory and for our good and our enjoyment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so first of all, we see he says that the people of God should be humble. Look at verse 1. We see in Matthew 18, verse 1, Jesus, or Matthew records, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if you didn't know the context, you might wonder, what are they asking? What, what are some things that we might think he's, that they're asking? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It might think that they're asking about the angels. Who's the greatest angel in the kingdom of heaven? Kind of getting into some of the things they don't know. Or, or maybe they're thinking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, where Jesus would say, no, we're all one. And that would be a long sermon on trying to figure out the Trinity. But that's not what they're asking about. Now, how do we know what they're asking about? Well, you've got to get the context. It says in there, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. And so when you read that, you wonder, well, what, what, what was going on at that time? So when you read the words, at that time, what should you do? What should you do when you read the words, at that time? There you go. The first service, Dr. Kerr said, read Genesis. And I was like, yeah, that's good. You know me well. You start at Genesis and go all the way through. It's one book, and that's good. But you don't have to go all the way to Genesis every time, though that wouldn't hurt. But if you just go back a few chapters, you get the context of the flow of the message. This is a book meant to be read like any other book. And so I read this week in preparation, chapter 14, 15, and 16, because that's where we left off. The third discourse was in 13. Now we're looking at 18. So what happened in the, the chapters between that is re- being referred to at that time? Well, there's some very interesting things that happened in those verses, and I think this gets at the heart of why the disciples are asking this question. For example, in chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who are people saying that I am? And they're like, oh, this, that, and the other. He goes, and then he looks at one person in particular. Who is it? Peter. And he says, Peter, who do you say I am? And he responds famously, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you. And then verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, on this confession of who I am, I will build my church. What an awesome encounter to have with the Son of God. To, to have a, a pop quiz and to get it right. And then Jesus said, that's right. And, and on you, Peter, on this rock, that, this confession you just made, and there's a play on his name there, I'm going to build my church. What do you think the other disciples were thinking? Well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can I get a chance? I want a second question. Let me get in on this. Well, and then if you keep reading, you see in chapter 17, how many people did Jesus take up to the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration? Three. And who was one of those three? Peter. Peter, James, and John. And then when they get up on the mountain and they see the, this incredible scene, this transfiguration, who's the one doing all the talking in chapter 17? It's Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is really good that we're up here. This is awesome. I am seeing some really cool stuff. Thank you for picking me among the others to go up here. I I appreciate my privileged position. I'm reading a little into it, but he says, Lord, this is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make you three tents here. 
One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because that's who appeared on the mountain of transfiguration. Now, the scene, the, the, what was going on there was God said, greater than, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, this is Jesus, he is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter was there for all that. And Peter's interacting with Jesus saying, let me build tents, this is good, we need to, we need to stay here and enjoy this. And so we see a second encounter in those inter- interchanging, intermission verse, intermittent verses between the two sermons. Peter's rising to the top. What else do we see? Well, Jesus in chapter 17, to get context, says, I'm about to go and be crucified. I'm going to rise from the grave and I'm going to ascend to heaven. We, we celebrated that at Easter, didn't we? And then he meets the tax collectors in Capernaum. I'm sorry, everyone just thought it's tax season. Yeah, yep, they're due this week, April. It's April 8th, so sorry, bad news. But anyway, so they meet the tax collector. But notice in the interchange as I was reading that, the, the, Peter appears to be a spokesperson for Jesus and the disciples. The, the tax collectors are asking, so are you guys going to pay your taxes? And they come to Peter. Is Jesus, what's Jesus teaching about taxes? And so Peter responds, and he's like the spokesperson. So in the, inner, in the verses in between, we see this rising up of Peter. Peter kind of is rising up to the top. And so as the context goes, Jesus is about to leave. And they all see, Jesus, they all see Peter kind of rising up head above the others. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So what are they asking? Huh? Yeah, who's the Billy Graham? Who, who, who's, who's your favorite disciple? I mean, let's be honest. Who's the greatest disciple of us all? The question is all about self-concern. It's all about their own status in Jesus' eyes. They, they want, they're, they're jockeying for position. They're concerned that one of the disciples is getting a better position than the other. So the, the issue here is a matter of serious concern. These, this question reveals a very serious problem in the foundation of the community, which is the foundation of the church. It's so serious that Jesus launches off into his fourth sermon about it. R.T. France says that this issue is at the heart of the entire discourse. He says that Jesus guides in this discourse, Jesus guides the individual disciples on how to live in relation to other members of the community. And he says special attention is given to the strains and tensions exposed through self-concern and a lack of care for fellow disciples. So as Jesus knows he is about to leave and he's got his disciples and he's been preparing them to be the community, that the witness of Christ in, to the ends of the earth, and one of them comes or they come and they say, which one of us is the greatest? He says, oh, wait, wait, wait. We've got a serious, serious issue, a serious crack in the foundation. And so let's just stop and think about this. What would this attitude, this which one of us is greatest, look like if that was rampant in the church? I mean, we all, in our church, every member is in a community group. And we get together weekly to, to gather together, to, to spur one another. And what if when, when the community group gets together, everybody's just trying to show off who's got the biggest house? 
What if every woman is like, I, I, I'm going to, you know, she made banana pudding, but I got a dessert that's going to show her. What if every time a question was asked, you know, uh, question number six says this, and, and there's that guy who always answers as fast as he can, show off how smart he is. Or prayers are not sincere prayer to God to help one another. They're just long, obnoxious, showy prayers trying to show. It's just jockeying for position. It would be nauseating. It would be terrible. I mean, it would be demoralizing. It would be destructive to community. That's what pride does to community. It divides. It it destroys community, which is the very essence of community is, is not pride. It's humility. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus is the ultimate community group leader. He's got kids running around. They're having community group. and, and So apparently they didn't have the child reimbursement policy that we have. And so the kids are running around in community group. And so he says, how am I going to teach them? Then he says, I'll tell you what. And he grabs one of the children and he, and he brings them up in front of the community group. And he, and he goes into this object lesson. And he it says in verse 2 that Jesus calls to himself a child. He put him in the midst of them. And in verse 3, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What a great community group leader. I wish he would just give us our little community group training every year, right? He sees the issue of pride, of self-interest, of self-love, and he says, I need to address this by pulling a child to the side, and he says to them in verse 4, whoever hums himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But he actually says two things. First, he says, entering the kingdom of heaven is like becoming a child or being a child, and then he says, the greatest is one who's been like a child. So what does he mean entering the kingdom of heaven is like a child of God, is like being a child, excuse me. Well, a child... It's not determining their own life. A child is not in, in, in charge of where they're going. They do not lord over their direction. They are not self-determining in their will. They have yielded completely to their authority. To be a, a child of God is one who repents. That's what that turning indicates. It means turning away from self-determining. It determ- Turning away from being ruler of my own life and self-will ruling me, and saying, I'm going to let Christ rule me. I'm going, to, I'm going to let Him be my authority. I'm going to turn from my sins, see Him as the forgiver of my sins, and give Him authority over my life, or recognize the authority that He has over my life. I'm going to just simply have a childlike faith. I'm going to trust Him so much that I prove it out through my obedience. I trust and obey Him like a child trusts and obeys parents. But then he describes the status issue. He addresses the status issue of who's the greatest in the the church, who's the greatest in my community group. And he says the greatest is the one who's like a child. Now what does that mean? What is the status or what does it mean? How great is a child? What is the status of a child in the family? We don't have to think much further than the Thanksgiving scene, do we? Thanksgiving scene, what are you always pulling out of the closet and setting up in the back corner? What is it? 
A card table. And who sits at the card table? The kids. The parents aren't sitting over there. The poor kids. And you just spend your whole life as a kid. I can't wait to get away from this card table. You know? Because you know that's your status. This is where I belong. And when I get off this card table, I have arrived into adulthood. It's a passage of manhood. From the card table to the dinner table. And so we know what he's saying. He's saying, listen, children know their status. They know they have no authority. They don't, when you walk into their home, the kid doesn't say, welcome to Mikasa. I mean, you're like, really? This is not your home. You did nothing here. You just mooch off of the family. And so there is no status for the children. And so Jesus is saying, the value system in the kingdom, the value system in the church, the value system in the community group is the complete opposite of the value system of the world. In the world, the greatest, the, the greatest of, their, of your corporation is the one who has all the power, all the authority, who tells others what to do and has people serving him or her. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, the greatest is the one like the child who has no authority, who has no power, who is not giving others instructions, but who is the one trusting and obeying and serving. So Jesus' system is radically different. The the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who is like the child, the one who is humble, the one who does not think that their life is so incredibly important that everyone should bow to them and serve them. In fact, it is the one who bows and serves others. So not only does he teach us to think about our own selves, view our own status as that of a child. But then in verse 5, he also tells us how we should view others in the community of faith. He says in verse 5, whoever receives one. So first he says, you should be like a child. And then he says, and then whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now that's very interesting. So think of what he's saying. He's saying you should consider yourself a child, but when you look at your brothers and sisters in the community of faith, you should view them and esteem them as you do Jesus. You should exalt them and esteem them as one who comes in the name of Jesus. They are children of God. They have been called children of God. Christ calls them his brother. He has declared them righteous, holy saints. And he says, esteem them as such as you consider yourself humble and in lowly position. This is the complete opposite of the world's standards. Where does he get such claims? Why would he, why would he say such a thing to us? Where, where do these standards come from? They come from Jesus himself, and we know that the scripture says in Philippians 4, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what what we see is that if you claim to be in Christ, the scripture says that you are born again and you are given the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, and the scriptures makes it clear that God who exists in all glory didn't hold on to that to say, you serve me. Instead, he emptied himself He emptied himself of all that and he took on the humble form of a a human and entered in our sufferings and our struggles in order to serve us and save us by dying on the cross for our sins in order to esteem us and make us children of God. He says, if you are in my community... If you are gathering with brothers and sisters, claiming to have that spirit within you, then you will be holy. And you will humble yourself. And you will esteem others greater than yourself. And you will serve them and promote good, what's good for them, over even your own needs. Is that that the spirit with which you come to church this morning? Is that the characteristic of your community group? God says that's what it needs to be like in and among my people. And what did Jesus do in his own life as a man in the flesh, the God-man, but he was in flesh walking? Do we see the same attitude in his life? Of course we do. Just one example is the Last Supper. What did he do at the Last Supper? He says, I'm about to go. And he didn't say, this is my last time with you. So as my disciples, the Son of God, I'm asking you to wash my feet. I want you to wash my feet because I want to see your loyalty. I want to see you bow down and I want you to wash my feet to prove that you are my disciples. Is that what he said? He did the complete opposite. He wraps a towel around himself and he gets down to his knees around their filthy feet, sandaled feet in a dusty desert type culture. And he washes their feet. It was so radical. They were just like, no, no. He says, let me wash your feet. Jesus says, this is what should be the the characteristic of this church. This is what it should be like in here. That we should be a humble people. Now, how does this come about? I've already alluded to it. It comes about only by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, bringing new life to us. And and we fanning the flames of humility in our own hearts through the Spirit of God as we pray, God, humble me. God, help me not to exalt myself over others. I mean, who of us wakes up in the morning saying, oh, glorious God, I want to serve others today? Liar. Especially not until you've had that first cup of coffee and had your quiet time. We wake up saying, somebody serve me. Somebody do something for me. I'm tired. I've had a bad weekend. I need someone to serve me. And the scripture says, now get up and serve others. Only the work of God can do that in our life. 
And we feed the fuel of that flame, reading the scriptures and praying, God, make this true in my life. So in the community of faith, there is no I in team. There's M and E, but it's not spelled that way, so you can't use that. We are other-centered, humble people who don't have to worry about getting what's ours because we have a community that is about getting, taking care of each other and all that we have already in Christ is sufficient. He frees us to give ourselves away. So we must be a humble people as we go out as his witnesses. In verse 6 through 9, we see we also must be a holy people. Look what he says in verse 6 through 9, more hyperbole, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary for temptation to come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So he's still using the child as an illustration, but now he pivots from be humble like a child to be holy and he says, anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin, and the way it's written is very particular. It's very intentional. It's not a little millstone. It's, it's the word used for the biggest millstone they had, the biggest, fattest, heaviest millstone wrapped around your neck. And the where, where it would be thrown was not the shallow end, but the deepest part of the depths of the sea. Jesus is intentionally flagrant here to get the point across. This is a serious problem. When you cause a disciple in your community to sin, it is a serious problem. In fact, the whole purpose of the community of faith is the opposite. God himself is holy. Sin is the antipathy of God. Sin is, is aligning yourself with Satan, his arch enemy. Sin is completely a fruit of a rebellious heart that's, that's turning your face away from God. And the community of faith is the very purpose of it is to fan the flames of holiness, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to, to lock arms like our church covenant says, is that you want to lock arms to, to have help in supporting you and in, in helping you live the life that God's called you to, a life of trusting obedience, a life of holiness. And so for us to cause someone in our community to sin is an egregious violation of God's will. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I don't know how hard I can emphasize this. Don't you dare call your brother, call your brother to sin. How do we cause one another to sin? I mean, none of us would go in and say, hey, I think you ought to disobey God. We cause others to sin when we sin. When we sin, we drag them down with us, right? When we're thrown into the bottom, the depths of the sea, we're grabbing feet and we're dragging them down with us. And so we must root out our own sin. We must wage war with our own sin. Because we don't want to be the cause we don't want to be the temptation for others. In verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones 
who believe in me to sin. In verse 7, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus is saying the disciple who tempts another disciple to sin or causes another disciple to sin would be better off in the deepest part of the sea with the heaviest stone imaginable wrapped around his neck. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 8 and 9, he tells us, wage war with your sin. If your hand and your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off. He's speaking in hyperbole. The idea is get intense about fighting sin. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So when we sin, we drag others down with us. And Jesus says, don't you dare do that to my children. The community of faith is to promote holiness, not to bring others down. And so use the strongest of language. We must wage war with sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And now we can add to it, be killing sin or it will be killing you and those around you. When Jesus warns about disciples being thrown into hell, you cannot lose your salvation. Let's be clear. He's not saying to his apostles that if you don't do this right, you're going to go to hell. What he is saying is those who have the Spirit of God are his true disciples, and those who have the Spirit of God will wage war against sin. Those who go to heaven will be characterized as those who have battle scars from their battle against sin. The characteristic of a Christian is not sin-free. The characteristics of of a Christian is they wage war against their sin. The one who thinks they are sin-free and is not waging war against their sin is the one that should be very afraid that they are not going to heaven because the Spirit of God will not allow them to see see it that way. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to His holiness and His flame, the more egregious we see our own sin and the more intensity with which we fight our sin. And so the intensity here is that we wage war against our own sin, that we do not take it lightly and thereby being an infection in our community and dragging others down with us. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, a sinful life, then you will die. But if by the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you're killing sin, then you will live. And so the Spirit of Christ who lives within us as believers leads us to take the Word of God and to pray, yes, these are true in Christ. Yes, Jesus bought these promises for me. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And yes, this is the call He has for my life. And yes, I can say no to sin. Yes, I must fight this sin. I must not 
justify it. I must not come to group week after week, belittling sin as if it's just something I'm kind of nagging me. Yeah, I'm still dealing with that. No, I wage war with it. I hate it. I call the troops in and I say, help me fight this sin. Because why? Because it's my soul's depending on it. But here we see not only that, but so is the community soul. And when I sin, I'm not only doing, wreaking havoc on my life, but I'm affecting you. Then my sin has a tremendous impact on your life, and your sin has an impact on my life. Because there's only one Christ. And if you're in Christ, and I'm in Christ, and you're in Christ, and you're in Christ, we are one in Christ. We are one interconnected body. And so what happens with me affects you. And what happens with you affects me. You can't think of your Christian life as just this private little walk with Jesus out there by yourself. You are part of a body. And Christ says that what happens to you affects all of us. And so he says, how dare you drag others down with your sin? When we walk into community group and we allow ourselves to be so um, enamored with the world and the things of this world, we're dragging those down with us. We're co- creating a context. We're creating a community where others start to think it's all about this world and the things of the world. When we are obsessed with, with doubts and fears and we don't battle them and we just kind of spread seeds of doubt, we're bringing that to others instead of asking them to help me fight it with the scriptures. We must take sin seriously. Not only for ourselves, but for what it's doing to the body of Christ. If we have an arrogant, self-serving, self-promoting attitude as we come to community, we make it harder for others to come to community with a humble, serving other spirit. If we have a critical, sinful, critical spirit and we're and we're talking bad about this and that, and we're tearing down with our words, we're just fanning those flames in community, leading others to do the same. If we have a spirit of gossip and we want to talk bad about others, you're only training others to gossip about others. And Christ calls us to holiness. Christ calls us to, to gather, to spur one another to love and good deeds, and to enlist fellow fighters of sin and say, help me fight sin in my life. Jesus died in order to make us godly. And he calls us to do the same for one another. So from these verses, we're reminded that we are a community of faith. We're more than simply individuals. In this community, we should be humble and holy And how we do that affects each other drastically. But I want to encourage you. I want to praise God for you. God has made you a humble, holy people for the most part. And I give God God all the credit for that. Because on our own, we're selfish, we're self-serving, we're prideful people. But... We're seeing the fruit of years now, years of taking the harder road. 
When we started this church, we said, how do we want to start? We could have started with, let's try to draw a thousand people and then hold on to them. But instead, we are much like Jesus with his early disciples saying, we need to get the foundation right. And we said, it may not work. No one may come, but we're going to try to say, let's hold the biblical standard out there and call people to it. And so as a church, we make that hard commitment to, to meet weekly, to lock arms, to say, help me live this life. Hold me accountable. Pray for me. Encourage me as I do the same for you. And I see the fruit of obedience here. Each, almost every week I hear someone say, there is something different about these people. And I believe it's God honoring his word, and it's the humility and the holiness, and that is a beautiful, attractive quality that God gets the glory for. But it is my honor to serve this body of Christ. I don't put up with a bunch of garbage. I don't hear a bunch of gossip. I don't hear a bunch of whining. I don't hear a bunch of moaning and groaning. I hear people saying, hey, do they have need? Hey, I know Don Green passed away. What can we do for them? I hear someone's in the hospital. What can we do? That's the biggest question we get. How can I serve? How can I help? What can I do? And I praise God for that. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I praise God for all that. And if you're not a member of this church, I want to invite you. The commitment, it's hard at times, but I tell you what, it is absolutely worth it. And we pray you'll join us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us that, to take messy, dirty, sinful, prideful, self-serving, egotistical people like me and to one day at a time, one week at a time, chisel away hardness of heart Chisel away, rip away selfishness and replace it with service of others. And Lord, I, I praise you that I can stand here and, and thank this body for being faithful to the scriptures and, and give you all the glory for that work in our hearts. But Lord, it all started with us having a new heart by faith in Jesus Christ. When you replace our heart of sin and you give us a heart that is filled with your spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, I pray today that everyone here will turn to Christ, ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to fill them with the spirit of God and transform them into humble, holy people. I pray that after this song, you'll come and tell us what Jesus is doing in your life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.